Welcome to Tea and Teaching Live. You're listening live with me, Arthur Moore, and as always, Mike Harrowell. Hi, Mike. Hello, Arthur. We're live. This is uh, very nerve-wracking. I know. Is the adrenaline pumping, Mike? It is. I'm very aware that we've got an MFL focus today, and we haven't said hello in multiple languages because of our limited language skills. So apologies if you're listening to this live and you're appalled that we can only speak English. So on that note, Mike, I think we should get on our guest for today because hopefully he knows more about MFL than us. Otherwise, this is going to be a very interesting pod. So (laughs) shall we welcome to the uh, live episode today, Joe Dale. Joe Dale, welcome to Tea and Teaching. Thank you ever so much. Lovely to be on the podcast. So Joe, I'm sure lots of people on the live know who you are, but I'm sure there's plenty of our normal listeners who maybe don't know who you are. So do you want to give us a little introduction into who Joe Dale is? I'd love to, Arthur. Thanks ever so much. Yeah, so my, as you know, my name's Joe Dale. I'm a former uh, languages teacher. I taught for 13 years teaching French at secondary school level for three years and then 10 years at middle school level on the Isle of Wight, which is where I live. And for the last 13 years now, I've been an independent consultant, normally going around the world, running training on the use of technology and languages as well as across the curriculum. But as a result of the pandemic, I've been doing most of my work via webinars, although I have been um, I've been doing uh, some face-to-face training as well. I've worked with all the major language associations or language organizations in the UK and lots of um, other organizations around the world as well. And I've been to places like um, Australia, New Zealand, North America, the Middle East, South America, all over Europe prior to uh, Brexit, of course. And uh, recently, I've been going to um, to Dublin a lot, doing courses for uh, European teachers under Erasmus Plus funding, which has been uh, been a lot of fun. And also, I'm according to the Guardian, I'm the man behind the MFL Twitterati, which, if you don't know, is a community of language teachers language consultants like myself and language organisations, particularly from the UK and from Ireland, but we have international members as well. And the hashtag is used by teachers from all over the world and has been for many, many years. So you sound vastly more experienced than both Mike and I. Mike, we've never been quoted in the Guardian yet. So let's make that clear. For the listeners who are joining us live, who maybe haven't listened to Team Teaching before, just a super quick background. I'm a secondary maths teacher by trade. Mike is a secondary P teacher by trade, but he has reached the uh, the heights of SLT and he sees all other parts of school. I'm just a lonely maths tutor these days. So, Joe, when we say tech in schools, we've spoken a lot on the pod about tech in schools, but we've never really spoke about in a specific subject. So do you want to kind of give us the elevator pitch maybe of tech in MFL? Why is it good? Wow. Okay. So a bit of a big question. So why is tech good in MFL? Well, I think a whole host of different reasons. I think it's really fantastic for motivation, although that's not the be all and end all, of course. But I think you can hook children in by using the technology. Maybe if they're more into the technology than the languages, that can be a fantastic way of hooking them in. I think that for formative assessment, for retrieval practice and you know quizzing tools like quizzes, etc., I think that the way that in which you can get immediate feedback is really powerful. The way in which you've got tools like Duolingo for Schools, for example, and, and Quizlet, who have been uh, using algorithms for many years, who then will um, remind you of different ways in which you can improve your learning by reminding you of words you need to work on or streaks you can go on and, and things like that. Uh, I think that's really helpful. I think the way in which you can be very creative with tech, so sort of appealing to the top of Bloom's taxonomy, the way in which you can um, 
produce your own output. The students can gain ownership of their work. I think that's absolutely brilliant by making videos or podcasts or recording themselves the way in which they can hear themselves back again and again and again. And that can really help with their confidence, their pronunciation. It can provide evidence of their work so they can see progression over time, for example. I think all those things are, are absolutely brilliant. I think for encouraging independence as well, tools like Immersive Reader, for example, I think are really useful for, let's say, reluctant uh, readers or writers or maybe students who are struggling maybe with, with languages, the way in which it can read back any text to you in the target language, the way you can translate individual words. For dyslexic readers, the way that you can have line spacing on a text, so you can have like one line at a time, a little bit like in the old days with a ruler, and you'd like uh, move the ruler down one line at a time while you're reading. That's just the digital equivalent. And I also think that through the MFL Twitterati community, through social media, it means that teachers can share about the latest tech tools that are out there and more importantly, how they're using them in the classroom. So if you were, for example, to do a search for MFL Twitterati plus a keyword, like uh, the name of a tool or a skill like listening or speaking, then you would find lots and lots of practical examples of how teachers are using technology in the languages classroom. So if we bring that to the classroom, Joe, if we're talking about in the classroom and listeners, if you're on live, please do put any questions you've got in the chat and we'll We'll come to those later on. Otherwise, it will just be me and Mike asking the questions and they're normally not the best questions. So it sounds like you're mainly using it as in the classroom as maybe an engagement tool is kind of what you said there, Joe, what I'm hearing. And like from my perspective, maths, like I'm not a huge fan of using tech as an engagement tool in maths. I use it more as a kind of way to kind of visually maybe explain something that is a bit more abstract. So how do you know that the tech is helping like with the learning, not just the engagement in maybe the class, which is, they're slightly different things, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And that's the acid test, isn't it, really, how it's improving the learning. And I think that apart from sort of anecdotal evidence of what teachers have said that I've seen spoken about over many years, I mean, it is anecdotal, the improvement, and it might not just be to do with the technology, there could be a whole myriad of things that are going on in the classroom, which can improve standards, I think. But I think that technology plays an important role within that. And I think that it's not just about motivation. I think, for example, with formative assessment, that's incredibly useful for the teacher to see, let's say, evidence over time of how a student is getting on individually you know this idea of personalized learning which is a phrase which has been banded around for many many years no one really knows what it means i think but i think technology can can help with personalized learning in the way that you can you can give immediate feedback or multimodal feedback to students the way in which you can use your voice in addition to text so you could for example uh, leave audio feedback. You could use a tool like Flip, previously known as Flipgrid. I'm still struggling to remember to say Flip each time. But um, the way in which you can give targeted, personalized individual audio or video feedback or written feedback as well, if you want in Flip, I think that's really powerful. So it's not just about motivation. I think that motivation plays a role. But I also think there are lots of ways in which technology can improve the teaching and learning in languages. And I think that from the point of view of, say, looking at tools like Blookit or Quizzes or Socrative or those sorts of tools, the way in which they make the, the students learn by stealth, if you like. So they think they're playing a game, which they are, but they're also, let's say, seeing the same questions again and again and again in a repetitive way. So that's really helping with retrieval practice. And there's lots of research behind the powers of retrieval practice to help with students' memories and their working memory in particular and drawing from the long-term memory into the working memory. And there's lots of other, other research that I could refer to. But if you're looking, say, for statistical evidence of how the technology is particularly improving the teaching and learning, then I think that's more problematic. But I think that in general, we need to equip 
young people with the tools that they'll be using in the workplace. And I think if we're not using technology at all, which is not to say that you couldn't be a brilliant teacher without the use of technology. And if you're only using technology, I think that's no good either. But I think that if you're not using it at all, then I don't think that's right. But at the same time, I think the genie is out of the bottle now in the sense that because of the, the lockdowns that we had, those teachers maybe who are always reluctant to use technology in language lessons, for whatever reason, I'm not here to bash teachers. I don't like bashing teachers at all. But for those teachers that maybe for whatever reason didn't have um, an interest in using technology because they had to use the technology when remote teaching and when hybrid teaching, I think, well, I would hope that their mindset to do with the use of technology in, in the language of the classroom and outside the language of the classroom has improved. Yeah, I think that's it's a really good point, Joe. It's a, a fine line to tread as a teacher, isn't it, between technology enhancing education and that that line over to sort of edutainment where we're playing a game. We're kind of disguising this game as education, but actually it's just a bit of fun to to engage everyone. The question I was going to ask, if I'm, I mean, we've been lucky enough, me and Arthur, to work in a school where it was every student brought a, an iPad with them. Every student had a device running Apple Classroom. It, it was great. It's such a privileged position to be in as a teacher. But if you're working in a school where, let's say you're an MFL teacher, you have a desktop computer in your classroom, the students are not bringing devices and they don't have access to their phones during the school day. Have you got some some programs that you would kind of say maybe one, two or three top most powerful programs they could use bits of technology to enhance their lessons and how would they use those? Yeah. Okay. So that's a great question. That's a question that comes up quite often. An obvious thing to say would be or an obvious tool that they could use that teachers could use would be plickers. So with plickers, what they can do is they can just use their mobile phone, as in the teacher can use the mobile phone or a mobile device like an iPad, for example. All the students have plicker cards, which look a little bit like QR codes. On each code, which is uh, which are all different, they have A, B, C, D around the edges. And so they'll see a question coming up on the screen that's been pre-made by the teacher using plickers. And then the students have to hold up the card in the format that allows them to have the, the letter, which they think is the correct answer on the top. And then the teacher can then go around and literally scan all the cards. And then that will then show whether they got the right answer or not. A little workaround is the students can then suddenly move the um, the code <laughs> to a different letter and then it looks like they've got it right then. But They're always one step ahead of us, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. But I think for the, let's say, one iPad classroom or one phone classroom, or if you only have a desktop, I presume there's a projector in the room. Is that right? Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, we'll go with a projector and yeah. Phew, okay. I feel like we're on Desert Island Discs and it's my uh, luxury item at the end. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I would suggest. And then apart from that, you've got obviously things like um, lots of tools you can use, such as Classroom Screen, which is a nice free tool, which allows you to um, organize your classroom by using things like stopwatches, or you can draw a picture on the screen, or you can add a text for instructions, or you can have a... Well, you could have a QR code, but if they haven't got mobile devices, that wouldn't be any point. But those sorts of things, that would be useful, I think. And then you can use a tool like, say, Book Creator, showing multimedia content, which could be videos or audio. So we're modeling the language or giving instructions. But um, I think what you just said about being in a school when it is, say, one-to-one iPads, then obviously that's going to give a lot of um, affordances that maybe a lot of state schools, let's say, wouldn't have, certainly in the UK, And so we have to consider very carefully our own context and work out what would work best in our own context. But I think one of the beautiful things about the MFL Twitterati is the way in which, as a community, we share 
lots and lots of ideas using readily available or normally free tools. And so it might be that, let's say, someone's been using PowerPoint for years and years and years, but have no idea that you can do certain things with PowerPoint. For example, one of the features that I've been talking a lot about recently is the way in which you can turn on um, the subtitle option in PowerPoint. In that you have to have the latest version, admittedly. But if your school has a Microsoft account, an Office 365 account, then you can have access to this. And then you can be speaking, let's say, either in the target language or in English, and then you could then have the subtitles being translated in real time appearing underneath. So when I've been going to Dublin, for example, working with these uh, European teachers I mentioned, I showed them how they could, let's say, speak in German, but have the subtitles appearing in Ukrainian. So if they have Ukrainian refugees coming into their schools, then they can use that particular feature, which they may not, which they haven't been aware of. In fact, it's been quite amusing because they sort of said, "Show me that again, Joe. Show me exactly what you did there." So they they find it, you know, those sorts of things really useful. So I think that the way in which we share content, we share ideas, we share pedagogical ideas on Twitter as well as other places like on various Facebook groups as well, is just a great way for everybody who are part of those communities. And I appreciate not everyone is for upskilling and to inform them of maybe either tools they haven't heard of, which are free, or tools they've been using for years and they're not aware of certain features which they could use in their languages classrooms. Mike, can I ask you a question from kind of an overall school perspective as a senior leader? And thanks for the people putting questions in the chat. We will come to those. We've spoke before about like encouraging teachers to kind of have that autonomy to go and experiment in lessons and to go and try new things and to fail and to succeed. And I was thinking, like, that's great if you're trying a, like an idea or concept. But if I come to you, Mike, and say, like, oh, I want to try using loads of tech in my lesson. Like, I want to use this. And you go, well, the school is anti-tech, anti-phones, whatever. Like, there's such good reasons and such good research to not have phones in school. How do you balance that conversation with a teacher who is trying to do something really positive and proactive in their development and for their students? But maybe it's contrary to kind of a wider school culture, maybe. I'll come at that from two sides. First of all, the culture side is so important for schools, isn't it? That staff have that psychological safety where they feel that they can try new things and fail and not have that judgment placed upon them when something goes terribly wrong because things go wrong often in our lessons because we're trying new things all the time, seeing what works. I would say if someone came to me and said, I'd like to use lots of tech in my classroom, the first question I would say is, well, why? Why do you want to use tech? And we've, we've said this before. It should never be a whole school aim of to use a lot of technology. The aim should be to improve teaching and learning, to focus maybe particularly on feedback or particularly on questioning, and then look at that technology as a vehicle in order to improve that aspect of it. So I, I think if you're just saying, I want to get lots of tech in my lesson, I think you're coming at it from the wrong angle. I think you should be looking at what specific aspect of your teaching do you want to improve? And then going to someone like Joe or someone else out in that Twitterverse where you can go and finding those programs that can enhance what you're doing, not just simply replace. Don't replace a mini whiteboard with an iPad screen. That's just an expensive mini whiteboard. So that would be my my response to that. Joe, I can see you nodding along on Zoom. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with everything you've just said. And I think, again, I know I keep banging on about the MFO Twitterati, but I think those sorts of professional pedagogical discussions are incredibly useful. So, for example, a teacher might say, right, I want to do X, Y and Z in my lesson. What would the community recommend? And this is happening on a daily basis. And then you'll get people saying, oh, have you tried this? Have you tried that? I think this would work well. And through those sorts of informal 
discussions that are happening, as I said, on a daily basis, then in my opinion, that's you know an amazing form of professional development in the way that a teacher can ask a question, can get some feedback, can then maybe share how the lesson went based on the suggestions that were made. And then as a result of that, consider how his or her practice could then change in the future. And I love the way in which these sorts of informal conversations are happening on a regular basis. Because, of course, as we all know, you know, we should always be talking about the pedagogy and not the shiny, shiny of the technology. But at the same time, I know that people get very excited about, uh, me included, about, you know, a new tool that comes along or a new feature in the way that I've just, you know, talked about. And I think that that's really powerful. And I'd encourage everybody to to try things out, but to get feedback from the students and then work out individually as well as a, as part of a community what works and what maybe doesn't work in your particular context, which doesn't mean it won't work in someone else's context. And context, as we've talked about already, is absolutely key. So I think um, the sharing of ideas is amazing, but everyone has to uh, work things out for themselves and experiment, and I'd encourage everyone to do that, to work out what works in your own context, because it might be that you're showing a tool that someone on Twitter has been raving about, but it just doesn't work for whatever reason in your own school. But I think this this whole sort of whole school approach, I think, is very important in the way that clearly, you know, that's what you're being told to do, as it were, from the, the school's perspective. But I also think it's important to experiment as well, as long as you're you're using, let's say, Office 365 or Google or whatever the environment is that you're in, but have the opportunity to experiment as well, as long as you speak to the person in charge of, uh, you know, e-learning at your school to make sure that from a GDPR point of view or from an e-safety point of view that you're covered, you've covered all your bases and you're not doing anything which could um, endanger the safety of the children. Definitely. You mentioned there about being excited about new features, Joe. I'm very excited because I'm looking at Twitter spaces and I can see we've got questions. So I'm going to hand over to one of you two because I have no idea how to use Twitter spaces because I'm a bit of a dinosaur. Should we have some questions from our listeners now? Yeah, it's good on a tech episode, Mike, for you to be like, you really enjoy downloading Audacity for us to record on. You were asking me what Zoom are we joining beforehand? And now you're asking, are there any questions on this on this tweet turfing I've heard? I'm really good at what I'm good at. And if I've never touched something before, I'm horrendous at it. Well, that's exactly the attitude we want in <laughs> life. I can either do it or I can't. Don't ask yeah, me to try anything it. new. So, Joe, we've got a question from... Gino MFL, who's asking what the best podcasting apps to use for language projects are. So um, in general, I would suggest that um, if you're talking about the children making their own podcasts, which I presume that's what you're saying from the context, I would recommend looking at anchor.fm, which is a completely free solution for not only recording, editing, but also for hosting your podcast. It was acquired by Spotify back in 2019. And they've spent millions and millions and millions of pounds or dollars, shall I say, on Anchor. So I would be amazed if it suddenly goes away. Whenever you have a company that's giving free hosting for audio, you can never guarantee that it's always going to uh, stick around. But I think that in the case of Anchor, it should be absolutely fine. And my feeling is, you know, it's going to, well, if if it's not already, it's going to be like the... um, the equivalent of YouTube with video, it's going to be the equivalent of that with audio. So I think the first thing I would say, going back to what I just said a moment ago, I would first talk to the person in charge of e-learning at your school about the idea of producing a student podcast, And I think, which I think is a brilliant idea, but setting ground rules such as not mentioning personal names on the podcast or any sort of personal information I think is incredibly important. I also think 
that the teacher should be the gatekeeper of all the content in the sense that you can easily create um, an anchor account as a teacher. You can set up your your podcast name and your your artwork and all that sort of thing, and you can do all of that yourself. But then you can, it is possible to receive audio messages using the anchor website. But the issue around that and in a school context is you need to have an email address to log in to do that. So I'm not recommending that students do that. What I'm recommending is the students, let's say, use a tool like Vokaroo, which doesn't require them to to have an email account, to have an account at all. And they can just hit the big red record button, record their audio. They can record for as long as they want to. They can then stop recording. It generates the link. You then share the link with the teacher and the teacher from there can then download that audio and then just literally drag and drop it into the episode builder in Anchor. And then also with Anchor as well, you've got things like musical segues, which are all copyright free, which so it, mean, it means you can make your podcast sound really professional. But it can it can take a lot of time to produce a podcast, which I'm sure you, you would say yourself, particularly if you're going to edit it. But what some people do is instead of building everything in Anchor and editing in Anchor, which is a little bit finickety, you could just record in Audacity, as we're doing right now, for those people who are listening on Twitter Spaces, each one of us is recording in Audacity, and then Arthur and Mike are going to send me their audio track so I can uh, edit it all together, and it should sound like we're all in the same room, even though obviously we're not. So that'll be really good from an audio quality point of view, which is another important consideration, I think. But I think as a starting point, Anchor.fm, but getting the students to send you the audio, don't get them to create any sort of account because um, I just don't think that's a good idea to do. So just to add to that, firstly, we use Anchor to do our podcast and Mike edits the pod very well on Anchor. So it's it's very easy to use. Another idea you could have, if you want to do kind of more like a Q&A style podcast, you could use something like SpeakPipe. So SpeakPipe, students can log on, I don't need an account, they just record essentially a voice note for you. And then you can very easy download that and drag that onto Anchor to make kind of a Q&A style podcast. But Anchor, I would recommend is just a really easy way to go. On that kind of point, Joe, do you think there's going to be a trend of teachers producing podcasts, not for the wide edu community, but for their class? Do you think that's a trend we're going to see? Right. Well, again, I think that's a really interesting question because this is something I've wanted to see for many, many years. My first podcast was 2006 with my students when I was teaching in the middle school. So I was a really, really early adopter and I used to love recording with the students and hearing them improve their pronunciation and their understanding of grammar points and what have you. And those those podcasts are still available at uh, nodehillfrench.podomatic.com if you want to check them out. Good plug. <laughs> that's right after 15 years later um so they, we made those in 2007 but i first um started podcasting in 2006 but i think there's been a few supposed podcast revolutions when people are like saying oh yeah it's going to we're going to take over the world this year but um it's never really happened what what has happened i think which you probably will agree with me about i think because of anchor and the fact you can now create a podcast completely for free it means that there are definitely more educators who are producing podcasts, not only because of the the pandemic, and we had nothing else to do during that time, obviously, <laughs> with all our ample free time. But I think prior to the pandemic, I think that I was certainly seeing as a result of Anchor's generous free option, there were more educators who were producing podcasts. So for example, in the webinar, which um, I took part in this morning, which you appeared on, Arthur, about educational podcasting, I shared a Wakelet collection which had 45 different educational podcasts. 
And I would imagine most of those are on Anchor. And I also shared one with about 19 podcasts, which I personally appeared on since the start of the pandemic, because I just I love podcasting and, and finding out what other people are doing in their and their workflows as well. So um, who knows? But I think I would like to see more student based podcasts. I think the issue around it is as teachers, generally speaking, are very time poor, there is a certain amount of of time which a podcast needs to be good, to be good quality. You need to promote it as well. That said, I think if you do make a school podcast, then it's all about the local community and about promoting it in the local community and the buzz that the students get from having their voice being heard. I mean, I remember going back to the the grammar one that I did back in 2007. I remember of the early days of Twitter and and, um, someone sending a a tweet saying, oh, listen to your students' podcast this morning. And they were based, I think, in East Anglia, I think it was. And I told the students and they were absolutely made up. So it it shows the power of being able to publish to a real audience and the motivation behind that and all the benefits I've talked about already about uh, the whole recording and editing process and deepening students' understanding. But the elephant in the room is that there is a certain amount of time that you need to devote to making a podcast. So what you could consider, which I know some people have done, for example, my friend Rachel Smith, who um, lives on the Isle of Man and created her own student podcast, is she ran a podcasting club. So for those people who are really interested in this, they sort of collected the audio from um, their peers. And then they were the ones who then took on different roles, such as editor or presenter or interviewer or scheduler or whatever it might be. That might be a better way forward rather than having, let's say, 30 children all trying to record themselves at the same time in an ICT suite or in a classroom. If you have access to appropriate devices, that's going to be difficult because obviously you're going to have background noise and all the rest of it. So it might be an idea to maybe set audio homeworks and then pull the best examples together into a podcast, that sort of thing. I think the way it's ever moving is also there's so much material out there in podcast form, but rather than creating your own podcast, there's there's so much out there. I know as a maths teacher, I've recommended maths podcasts, which Mike always listens to, to my students who want a bit of background, especially the older students. Mike, I imagine there's like, I know we've discussed sports science podcasts and I'm sure you could, you could recommend those to the students. I don't know if you have. Yeah, I always do it, especially, especially A-level students. If there's a sports science podcast that I listen to and something crops up and it's to do with the topic we're doing, then yeah, I like to guide them towards that. And even I, I, I sometimes just say, just start it at this minute and kind of guide them to the section that's appropriate for them because students are very busy. They're very limited attention span sometimes so if you can just say listen to this five minute segment it's going to really show you what we're learning in the real world i always think that's beneficial as well and not all podcasts are an hour long there are some really short like little snippet podcasts the ones i really recommend to students when they're getting ready made for the ucras and interviews potentially for universities are just some of the current affairs podcasts that they can go and listen to and just give them these little snippets into the world and then that might pique an interest and i'm sure that's the same same for languages, Joe. You like you're trying to pique these interests, and then students can go off where they want. Mike, you want to come in there? I just wanted to move on to another question for Joe. Something that's that's been puzzling me. You talked about being an early adopter of of podcast, Joe, and you're obviously an early adopter of a lot of technology. If you're working with a colleague, and let's say most of your department are really keen on this technology, they found a really good way of adopting it in their lessons. But you've got someone or a group of people in your department that are really struggling with that or really reluctant to get on that. As a colleague, not necessarily as a line manager, but as a colleague, how can you help promote that and encourage that? Yeah, that's a really difficult um, 
Well, no, not really a difficult situation, but I think that it's all about confidence. And a lot of technology use is about confidence. So if I was in that situation, let's say I was a line manager, or I was in that department. And this is what I actually did when I was... Um, when I was teaching, because surprise, surprise, I was quite keen about the use of technology and I would regularly do like one-to-one sessions with teachers saying, oh yeah, this is how you set up a blog or this is how you do this. This is how you create a podcast. I can remember back in the day showing a couple of um, of my colleagues, including a maths teacher actually, and he actually started a, a maths pod, which was would have been really early days, would have been about 2008 or something. So there we are. And there weren't a lot of maths pods that I was, I was aware of that were out at that time. But um, I think that sort of sitting with that person, giving that person support or maybe a couple of people, because it really is about confidence. And it, yeah, you might get people who are just completely anti-tech and scared of technology. And I do occasionally meet people who are like that or people that generally don't know how to copy and paste and things like that, which I, in today's world, I, I find quite surprising. But as with anything, as with, you know, if you're, if you're working with a, a child who's struggling, you just show a bit of love, you show a bit of support and you just say, it's going to be okay. Let's just focus on one simple idea, and we'll go with that. So you run the risk, I suppose, sometimes in a training session when you have a wide range of um, techno-savviness, let's say, of uh, finding it difficult to cater to everyone's needs. But I always say at the end of a session, it's really important that everybody takes at least a couple of things away that they definitely try out. Because if they just try everything at once, then what will happen is they'll probably get overwhelmed or fall over or what have you, and it just won't work. Whereas if they definitely... You know, say out loud, I'm going to use this tool next week and I'm going to find out what my students think of it, then it's more likely to work. And I appreciate that there are teachers out there who do feel worried or overwhelmed by the use of technology, but I would have hoped as a result of the pandemic and the remote teaching context we found ourselves in that maybe some people's mindsets have changed a little bit if they were very reluctant because they've seen the power of what they can do with technology. And I was, I was going to say as well, actually, just going back to the previous point around finding a, let's say, useful five-minute section of a pod. Absolutely. I think that's a really useful thing to say. But I also think that if the teachers can find the time to record their own little, I'm not necessarily a podcast, but let's say just a screencast. So as a result of, um, let's say, at the start of the pandemic, there were lots of state schools that didn't allow live lessons through Zoom or Teams or what have you. So there were lots of teachers who were creating screencasts for the first time and recording their voice or making a PowerPoint and recording a narration and exporting it as a movie or using tools like Loom or Screencastify or Screencast-O-Matic and, and those sorts of tools, I'm sure the students really appreciated just hearing their, their teacher's voice because that voice is something which is very familiar to them, intimate almost, particularly if you're listening on headphones, which obviously podcasts, most people consume podcasts by listening individually on headphones. And I think that's a really powerful thing. If it's your voice saying, do this, do that, even if it's just a five-minute bullet point piece, because who wants to listen to it like a, an exact copy or recording of a whole hour lesson? They just want the, the the bullet points to take away. So I think that both are good. I think that if you find a good podcast, you can share a little bit with them. But if you make your own, in my opinion, that's even more powerful, although obviously that takes time and people are busy. Yeah, definitely. Joe, I love Loom. During the pandemic, I kind of set myself a little project of going through the A-level specification and working out all the hardest topics that people struggled with. And I just did little five-minute looms on those, uh, just talking over some slides, some information. And then those students found that really, really helpful for their revision, those little five-minute snippets that they could build into that as well. So yeah, use Loom. Definitely use Loom, especially for that longer-term feedback. I remember doing for the IAs when we talked to the IB, mic of Rather than these long, long essays or loads of notes, like I'm going to record you a five minute video and then you can come back and go through that if you want. But 
I think going back to what you both said, Ria, about using tech in the classroom for someone who kind of wants to, is the question should never be, what tech do I want to use in my class? It should be, what is the problem I am trying to solve that technology can help me with? If you start with the problem and you can find tech to help you with the solution, that's a positive step. As Mike said, going full circle, kind of, if you just try and replace like for like, or you're just putting tech in for a reason, it's not going to have a benefit. And then we just start using tech for tech's sake. And tech does have its negatives. So we're just bringing in something that has negatives, not buying into its positives. So if anyone was thinking that, just really sit down with your line manager or a colleague or the staff and say, like, not what do I want to use? What is the problem I'm trying to solve? Or contact Joe on Twitter. Or contact Joe on Twitter or MFLRT community, Mike. I hear are very, very helpful. Joe, we're coming towards the end of the podcast there. Like, it's so nice to talk to someone about tech who knows more about tech than me and Mike, because we talk about tech, but it's normally like, have you got your phone today? I do have a phone. I don't know, Mike, like a lot of what you two have been talking about in schools with starting podcasts. I think I was still in year nine. So maybe, maybe I'm just more <laughs> attuned with the technology than you, Mike. I don't know. You were teaching when I was at school, right, Mike? Is that right? Yeah, thanks. Thanks for reminding me and and everyone who listens to this about that. Thank you. I just just accidentally dropped it in. I'd love to edit that out of the pod. We don't edit the pod, Mike. Joe, my final question to you is someone wants to go away and find out like more about MFL and tech, more about you. Like where would you guide them towards? Where can they go and find out more about Joe, but also about this MFL community that you say is so awesome? Well, follow me on Twitter if you're not already. I've got 34,400 or so followers at the moment, nearly 4,500, uh, uh, sorry, 34,500 followers. <laughs> there we are. But not that, I'm, not that I'm into the numbers at all, but uh, it's nice to uh, talk about these milestones. So I would say that's a, a really good starting point if you want to know more about the sorts of things that I tweet about. What I tend to do, I tend to tweet lots of links, which I think the community are going to find useful, which is probably why I've got you know that number of followers. So I don't know the exact percentage, but I would imagine that probably about 75% of the things that I tweet about are sharing links, which I think either language teachers in my community will like, or people interested in edtech will like, or sometimes both. I do love a good pun as well and, you know, retweeting funny gifts and, and that sort of thing. But most of the time, I'm trying to be very professional and share interesting content, which I think that the community will like. So that's a good starting point. I think the MFL Twitterati hashtag, I would really encourage people to use as well. And I'd also really recommend, this is something I've talked about a little bit on a couple of other podcasts recently, is for those people who are on Twitter to do a bit of research around what are called Twitter search operators, which I think are really, really cool. And what they allow you to do, they're little snippets of, I suppose, like code, as it were. It's the it's the equivalent of the advanced Twitter search um, that you can do. So, for example, you could do a search for a keyword within a list. So I manage the list called the MFL Twitterers list, which has a particular number, which I don't know off the top of my head. But if you put in list colon and then the, the, then the number and every list that is available on Twitter will have a number. So you could do a search for a keyword, like let's say podcasting and then list colon and the number, and then you will only search that particular list. Or if um, you were to put in something like filter follows, so filter colon follows, and then a the keyword, it will only be people who are following you that the results will come up. So things like that. And then things like you can put in since colon 
the year, the month, the day with little dashes in between. And then that will give you results of tweets up until a certain year. Or uh, you can use either since or until. So um, you can choose until a certain date. So that could be if you have since and until on the same tweet, it could be that you're looking for tweets on a particular day, which could be, let's say, five years ago. So if you're into searching for information, I think that's incredibly useful. But the general sort of 10-minute challenge that I talk about would be when you're having a cup of tea or a coffee or your beverage of your choice, you're waiting for a bus or whatever it might be, you spend 10 minutes doing a search for MFL Twitterati plus a keyword, be it the name of a tool or a skill or a grammar point or whatever it might be, then you will find some interesting information. Another one for linguists as well, actually, is if you put in L-A-N-G colon F-R or L-A-N-G colon E-S or colon D-E for German, then you will find tweets only in that language. So, for example, if you put in a word like environment in that target language and then put in the lang colon fr let's say then you'll only get tweets that are in that language around that term of environment so if you're teaching let's say a level or gcse and you're looking for authentic content from twitter then you could find some really nice examples and you could then take screenshots of those and then use those as a starter activity so those are just a few things but if you do a search for twitter search operators you'll find this an absolute treasure trove of ideas for searching i just scroll up and down and see what happens but that <laughs> That sounds so useful to actually go actually go through Twitter and use it as a resource that is going to help you. So listeners, if you're listening live, definitely go and follow Joe Dale because there's some awesome stuff on there and he really knows his MFL stuff and he can direct some really good stuff. So I'd massively recommend following him because we do. Joe, thank you so much for joining us for the first TN Teaching Live. You'll go down in the, in the history books. Mike keeps a scrapbook. I'm sure he's going to scrap this later. Do a collage, right, Mike? Is that your plan? A collage and then edit it on Anchor because it's a fantastic program. Edit it on Anchor. Nice little plug there. Thank you for everyone for listening live. Thank you for everyone listening on the pod. If you're on the pod, stay on and me and Mike will be back in a moment with our key takeaways. Everyone who's been live, have an awesome rest of your evening. Follow us at TN Teaching and we'll speak soon. Welcome back to Teen Teaching. Well, that was our live episode, Mike, with Joe Dale. Live. We did something live, Mike. I know it was very, very nerve-wracking. But the um, listener, yeah, but we haven't got anyone live now. So we're off live now. Um, so Mike, we were talking about tech there, really, MFL, and then we use that as a gateway to go elsewhere. What was kind of your your main thought about all that? What's interesting is tech always seems to be really well used in MFL, actually. I don't know if it's the work that Joe and other people like Joe have done to spread that or if it just lends itself more to MFL. But I think there's definite crossover. I think like the three apps or programs he talked about at the start that an MFL teacher could use if they just had a computer and a projector, actually, you could use that in any subject. Uh, in terms of, I can't remember the name of it, where you hold up the QR codes and it scans around the room and gives you their answers. That That's brilliant. You can just pick that up, print those off and go with that tomorrow, regardless of what subject you teach. So, yeah, I really like some of those ideas that it just, just um, enhance what you're doing, maybe speed up some processes, but make your life just that little bit easier in the classroom. What about you, Arthur? I think the more we talk about tech in schools, and this is probably our third or fourth pod on the topic, really, and it was a bit more specific today, which was nice, but it still comes back to me of 
you've got to use tech to solve a problem. You don't just use tech to solve all the problems. And the more we talk about it, the more I'm, I really think if you're in the classroom, think about introducing some tech. You've really got to go back to the basic of what's the problem and speak to someone else about it. Get someone else's perspective on the problem before you bring in tech, because then you're bringing in tech for the right reasons and you're going to buy into it and you're going to get other people buying into it and you can get the students buying into it. If you just bring something that's flashy, um, I know I did this in the past with like Kahoot, or I want to make my lesson fun, so I'll do a Kahoot. That's not good teaching. But if like, there's a very specific reason where Kahoot can help me, then that's going to be working. So for me, that was kind of, again, just reiterating that there's got to be a problem to be solved, not just flashy tech, as you call it. What a fantastic takeaway to end this episode on, Arthur. Um, thanks to Joe for coming on. Thanks to everyone who did listen live to it on Twitter. And thank you for you listening to it on podcast afterwards. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tea and Teaching. If you've enjoyed the content of this episode, please feel free to share it with other educators. And if you're able to, please leave a review on the platform. And as always, thank you for listening to Tea and Teaching.